Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, January the 24th, 2024. It's the old question. Uh, do we have free agency? Does free will exist? It's an issue that's taken on particular resonance and relevance in our age of AI and smart machines. If machines can acquire free agency, uh, free will, then what becomes of us humans? Um, it's a subject we've talked about in a general way uh, lots of times in the show, and we are having another conversation on free will with Kevin J. Mitchell, who uh, is an academic and neuroscientist at Trinity College in Dublin. He has a new book out, appropriately called Free Agents, How a Evolution Gave Us Free Will. And Kevin is joining us from Dublin. The book is just out. Congratulations, Kevin, on the book. Thanks very much. And thanks for having me. I assume you used free will uh, in the writing of the book, Kevin. Yeah. Yes, I, I absolutely did. I chose to, I chose to write it. Yeah. How, in all seriousness, how does the writing of a book manifest free agency? Uh, hmm, that's an interesting question. I guess what I would say is that it, it uh, you know, it's the expression of, of a bunch of thought processes that, that go on that I would say are real things that I did as a person, right? as opposed to stuff that just happened in my brain where... Uh, I just happen to be the place where that happened. Um, so yeah, I would say it's the expression of some part of myself in, in the sense of the, those are my opinions. That's the, um, that's the framework that I came to that um, for me kind of lets me sleep at night, if you will, in the sense that I was bothered by this issue of, of free will. You know, the more we learn in, in neuroscience, uh, the more we reveal of these machinery um, that we use for decision making, it can be a little tempting to say, well, it's, we're not making a decision at all. It's just the machinery, right? You know, that we're not really involved in that process as selves. And I wanted to see if there was a way out of that um, kind of really reductive way of thinking about it. So maybe I, uh, I, I was driven a little bit, you know, by some of my, my motivations to actually try to do this project. Kevin, you're talking to me from Ireland, of course, uh, historically very much associated with the Roman Catholic Church and religion. Mm. How is the debate these days amongst neuroscientists like yourself, uh, other kinds of scientists, how is it different from the debate that uh, Christians in particular have had over the last two or 3,000 years on the issue of free agency? It seems to be something that obsessed clerics of one kind or another and often dominated one kind of schism or another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely right. And it's funny, there's some interesting parallels. So, um, you know, in early, early Christian thought, there uh, came eventually the idea that if God is all powerful and really controls everything, then why does he, and he's all good, then why does he allow evil things to happen? Why do bad things happen in the world? And the um, early Christian way out of that was to say, well, he gave us free will. So he doesn't sort of micromanage everything that happens. Uh, humans actually have free will and they make their own choices. And of course, then the, the, 
we initially started with the wrong choice in the Garden of Eden, and we've been suffering ever since. Right? Um, so there's a sense there where um, you can ascribe, first of all, it kind of solves the problem of evil, God's not doing evil stuff, but also you can ascribe moral responsibility to people because they're in control of their actions, God is not in control. Now, the Calvinists apparently uh, um, took took exception to that, and I believe um, the sort of general feeling in, in that branch of Protestant, Protestantism, at least, um, is that that's not right, that God is in control and that it's uh, arrogant to say that humans can't do anything. So um, it, it's, there's a kind of a parallel in scientific thinking, which I think came from Newton, but goes into, into neuroscience as well, the idea that there are laws in the universe, those are the things that determine what happens. And that, you know, the idea that humans could be determining what happens is, again, a kind of an arrogance. You know, it's, it's, it's like it's going against this um, basic sort of premise of materialism. And I mean, I think that view is mistaken, but I think it's quite common in neuroscience to get this feeling like, yeah, it's a temptation at least to think, well, maybe we're just really complicated robots and we're just playing out our pre-programming. Um, it's difficult to see how we as cells can have um, control and agency in that picture. Kevin, with the Enlightenment, um, Newton, Hobbes, the idea of us as bodies hurtling through space, motion defining us. I think uh, Hobbes even wrote in Leviathan, uh, we, we, we're just motion. Does free agency and free will, is it bound up? in the body is that the the bridge between the christian world and a, and a modern world this shift from a god-centric world to a body-centric world yeah well yes and no i i think part of the problem when thinking about free will is people um you know if they if they take materialism the idea that there's just material stuff physical processes and so on there's no supernatural stuff right happening then um it's a little hard to see how just thinking of yourself as a body gets you to this point where you can be in control, right? But there's this sort of an intuition that you yourself are somehow kind of, you know, the ghost in the machine, you're sort of situated in your, in your body as a, as a vehicle, um, but, but distinct from it somehow. And so that was uh, Descartes' sort of view of dualism that mind and body are distinct from each other. There's a mental realm, there's a physical realm, but the mental realm allows you to decide what to do. But then he had this big problem, right? How does this mental realm interact with the physical realm and, and push things around? And that I think has been a, just a lasting, um, very uh, tempting intuition that many people, in, including many scientists fall into. And it really raises this challenge of how neuroscience can explain psychology without explaining it away. Right. Without we want to understand how the brain allows us to produce cognition and decide things without saying it's just the brain deciding things, little neural circuits. You're just being pushed around by your parts. I think that's the challenge. I want to get to neuroscience in a second, because, of course, that's the core of, of your work and the book, Free Agents. But I wonder when it comes to free agency and free will, historically, how have most scientists or, or non-scientists thought of it being manifested when i think of hobbes who's particularly who i've always been very interested in a regular viewers now i bring him up whenever i can for mm -hmm. hobbes we manifest three free agency free will in, in politics by organizing ourselves 
to protect our lives. Is there a difference between, or historically, is there a difference between thinking about free will in politics, in culture, in sexuality, in sociability, mm -hmm. or, or are they really the same thing? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a really interesting question because you. I think you can dissociate two aspects of, of free will. One is um, that you are not being coerced by things in the environment, right? So that there's a certain amount of freedom as an individual to do what you want. And if you're, say, in a totalitarian state or, um, you know, under some uh, economic circumstances that don't give you the opportunities, then you're not as free to follow your own desires. Right? So that's one kind of aspect. That's a situational aspect. And I think we can agree that under some circumstances versus others, we might be more free. I think that's a reasonable, um, uncontroversial thing to say, but it's only un uncontroversial if the idea that we're free at all ever is, is there to play with, right? Otherwise you can't have degrees of that freedom. And so the question really is not just that you're not pushed around by anything outside you. It's that you're not pushed around by stuff inside you either, right? It's not just the, the mm. neurons firing in your brain that are making you do things and then sort of telling you about it afterwards. It's that you as a whole entity, as a self with, with continuity through time, are able to, to guide and direct your own behavior. So it's the essences of, and this comes back to the enlightenment of self-management. Yes, absolutely. It's autonomy. So we're in control of ourselves. I mean, we're going to come to the brain in a second, but, but, but our bodies, we know what we want and we try to, to do that. We try to get there. Yeah. And, and so Aristotle put it well in, uh, well, I mean, the translation from Greek is that, um, you know, some things happen in the world by necessity. Some things happen by chance. Uh, some things are up to us. And it's that up to usness that, that I'm after. Some things are up to us, which is the core of free agency. Um, we are talking um, a very interesting conversation, very important conversation for all of us. Uh, and we think about these things all the time with Kevin J. Mitchell, the author of Free Agents, a new book on neuroscience and free will. Uh, his book is called Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will. I want to Thank our friends at Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, for bringing us such high-quality guests like Kevin J. Mitchell. Going to run a short feature on Liberties, and then we'll be back with Kevin to talk specifically about the neuroscientific aspect of free will and how recent advances in neuroscience change how we think about free agency. So we'll be all, we'll be uh, we'll be back in a few seconds. You can use all your free agency to make sure you. You come back with us. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. Well worth an excellent collection of writing. We are speaking with Kevin J. Mitchell, the author of Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will. Uh, the book is just out. So, so Kevin, let's get up to the 19th century and Darwin, the idea of evolution. How does 
Darwin's theory of evolution, or at least evolutionary theory, how does this change uh, our notions of free will? Well, um, so for me, in thinking about free will, of course, it's been this philosophical problem for, for millennia. Um, there's lots of psychology about it, philosophy, neuroscience, and so on. Um, but the problem is humans are super complicated, right? They're the most complicated things that we know of in terms of this particular capacity. And I think if we just... Can I just jump in here, Kevin? I don't mean to... I don't like interrupting, but um, we've had a number of neuroscientists on the show, and I was asked them the same question. It seems a fascinating one. It perhaps points to some proof of religion, but is it true that our brains are the most complicated thing in the universe that we know of? Yeah, I mean, you can make an argument for it, sure. Yeah, yes. So it's not an absurd idea? No, I don't think so, no. No, I mean, a human brain is staggeringly, staggeringly complex. Absolutely, yeah. Although I guess it depends how you define complexity. It does, but I think there's reasonable sort of um, objective ways to define it in terms of the number of components, the different types, the number of connections, um, the levels of the hierarchy, and so on. So I think there are perfectly defensible, uh, sort of formalizable ways to say, the human brain is more complex than the brain of a fly, for example. Yeah, that's so. In other words, the most this conversation is the product of the most complex things that we know of in the universe. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable thing to say for sure. Yeah, and and that's the problem, right? So so if we want to understand how you know the basic principles of something like um, behavioral control, right? How does any organism control their behavior in the world? How do they become a cause of things in the world, not just pushed around by other causes? Then um, it's probably not the best idea, to, if we want to get a handle on the basic principles, to start with the most complex thing we know of, right? If we wouldn't, if we wanted to understand the principles of aeronautics, we wouldn't start with the space shuttle. You know, we'd start with the Wright brothers, and and we'd build from there. And that's of course how how evolution did it, and that's why I chose to take that that um, angle and that trajectory in the book was to try and figure out, you know, if we want to understand how we control actions, well, how does anything? How does any organism control what to do in the world? And, and it goes really to very basic questions of what it means to be a living thing. The idea that it's a, this, this sort of collection of processes that's, that's precarious, right? It's a certain arrangement, but the organism has to do work to keep itself that way. Right. So, and Kevin, uh, one of the, I guess, shocking things philosophically about what Darwin observed, which I think was like a bomb exploding in the middle of the 19th century, was the idea that none of us really knew the narrative that he introduced, that our species was evolving, but we can't understand, man. It requires scientists to go to the Galapagos and look at uh, ancient stones and tortoises and all the rest of it. How does the idea of evolution affect the notion of free will, since none of us as individuals can ever control the process of evolution? Yeah, well... The really interesting thing is that what, while we don't control evolution, what evolution has done is produce things that do control themselves. Right? I mean, that's what living things do. They keep themselves organized by doing work to prevent the decay, you know, thermodynamic dissipation into the universe, basically. So evolution um, produced things that have that power for the simple reason that things, are good, things that are good at staying organized tend to persist and they tend to reproduce. And things that are have an organization that, that isn't good at that, well, they won't persist. And so evolution has this 
ratchet mechanism. It builds on complexity, right? So it's it's cumulative. That's the really key thing is that it, it builds on what happens as what, what's gone before, which means you can start with simple things that have very sort of simple responses to things in the environment. And you can build from there much more complicated, sophisticated kind of control systems that integrate lots of information that go through kind of internal levels of, of um, processing of different kinds of information that try to manage behavior over multiple goals at the same time and so on. And that's ultimately what nervous systems are for. That's, that's exactly the design specs for, for what a nervous system has to be able to do. You said things are, that are good at being organized persist. How would that explain how we all seem to be hurtling into some sort of environmental apocalypse since yeah. uh, we're, we're, I guess, in a sense, organized, and yet collectively we can't seem to be able to protect ourselves from yeah. destroying the uh, the planet yeah yeah well i mean there is an irony there where i think you know a good way to think about that is that we evolved under circumstances where we were living in you know in small groups we evolved um the propensity for pro-social behavior for reciprocity and so on such that uh, we could get cooperative benefits from from other from other people and that's how little you know societies emerged but of course, we got so good at that, right? And we got language. And we, what was it allowed us uh, our learning to be cumulative, right? So we could build on what went before um, in in terms of learning, not just evolution. And so that let us kind of break free from our basic biology. And of course, it, it's the thing that let us um, uh, sort of navigate the 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 globe and. and uh, populate the entire uh, explain the that kevin you said language sets us free from our biology what does that mean well what i mean is uh so other organisms can learn right so part of the whole point of having a nervous system is you learn from experience you can build up a model of the world that allows you to guide your behavior in adaptive ways based on what has happened before so you can learn in, in this situation this was a good thing to do and, right. so you don't go to you if you're a, a you know, if, if you're going to get eaten by a lion, you don't in the daytime, you only go out at night. Sure, exactly right. So last time you went out of the daytime, bad things happened. But the problem is uh, that learning, <laughs> that's a that's a that's a dangerous way to learn things, right? If you have to do it all yourself, it's super dangerous. And it, there's a limit on what you can learn in that way, just by yourself in a lifetime. But if I can tell my kids, for example, what I've learned, and I my parents told me and my neighbors and my friends and so on, then you get this cumulative explosion, right? So you can build and build and build. Not everyone has to learn everything from primary firsthand experience themselves. And that means that cultural evolution is the, is the thing that really set, sets us apart from other animals. And it lets us reason is justly more powerful than individual reasoning alone. So let's get back to the, you know, I keep on interrupting. I'll try not to, okay. Kevin. It's my free will manifesting no That's my absence of free will. I can't control myself. Okay. Let's get to how, in your view, I mean, this is obviously, there are many people commenting on, in this space, neuroscientists, philosophers. But in your view, how has evolution given us free will? How has that worked? Well, what you can track is this, this trajectory from simple things that um, take in information from the outside world, 
and use that to guide their behavior in appropriate ways, right? So you can start with kind of what you might call control policies that are wired into, say, the biochemistry of a bacterium. So it's, it's acting for reasons, right? So it might move towards food. And the reason for that is that natural selection has said that's a good thing to do. So it's sort of like natural selection's reasons, but the whole organism is, is, is still deciding what to do. There's lots of signals coming in at the same time. As you get more complicated, say into multicellular organisms that have nervous systems, they still have to know what to do. They still have some range of actions that they could do at any moment, and they have to choose between them, right? Because they can only do one thing at a time. So that necessitates a system that picks one action at a time. And of course, it makes it valuable to get some information on which the, on the basis of which to make that decision. And that's basically what nervous systems are good for. They take in sensory information, they do some internal sort of processing on it, and then they try and decide, uh, typically by linking to past experience, as we just said, what's the best thing to do in this situation, given my goals, given my current state, given what I think is out in the world. So I think you can you can see um, you know the neuro, the neural machinery that allows us to do those kinds of things, allows us to choose goals and activities and particular actions in the moment that will uh, achieve those goals and so on and, and guide our behavior um, through time. Now, the challenge there is there's two ways to see that, right? One is to say, that's the machinery that I'm using to make decisions. And the other is to say, you're not involved in that at all. The machinery is making the decisions. You're just being taken for a ride. Right? You, don't, you don't have your hands on the wheel at all. And so the challenge sort of philosophically is to say, well, how could it be right to think that the whole organism is, is uh, the, the locus of decision-making, of causal power, that it's not the parts? And that is the, is the story that I try to tell in the book. Kevin, a lot of talk of machines. We live in the age, of course, of smart machines. Is it any coincidence uh, that we increasingly think of the brain as a kind of machine and perhaps as humans as machines in the way you're presenting it at the very moment where we're inventing these smart machines these extensions yeah. of ourselves which some people see as the last chapter in in the history of our species others see as an opportunity for us to live uh more freely perhaps to manifest our, our, our free agency uh, is it coincidental or is our thinking about the brain and neuroscience and machinery, is it somehow a consequence or a cause of all this development in artificial intelligence? Yeah, yeah. I think the, the, so these things are very much in the air, right? Within in neuroscience and AI, these, these fields are, are um, yeah, cross-fertilizing each other a bit these days in interesting ways. And of course, there's this existential crisis that's posed by the really impressive abilities of things like ChatGPT, or the, at least the apparently impressive abilities, right? So they're very good at, at, at um, I mean, really good, phenomenally good at, at making these reasonable sounding utterances uh, about various things, right? So they can write sentences and paragraphs and things that pretty reasonable um, at a decent standard of, of sort of knowledge. They can synthesize things and so on. So the, there's at least an illusion of understanding there. And so some people will look at that and go, well, look, if these machines are understanding things, what does that mean for our understanding? Maybe we shouldn't be as impressed with ourselves 
as we otherwise would be, because now we have this existence proof of something that we know is just a machine, right? Uh, and and yet it's, it has these impressive abilities. So um, it's understandable, I think, that people are interested in these questions. I, I don't um, subscribe to the view that these machines actually have understanding or that they threaten what's uh, sort of special about us because they're, they don't have the same kind of architecture that, that our brains do. They don't interact with the world or relate to things in the world um, at all, actually. So they don't have the same sort of existence as we do. They're not alive. Um, they're not agents. But, um, you know, there's, it, that's just because of the way they're designed. I, I don't see any reason in principle why they couldn't be designed in ways that could allow them to interact with the world like we do, could allow them to have some goals, could allow them to have some persistence through time that they have to work at and so on. And then you get into a whole really interesting kind of um, territory about- More, more than really is, interesting. Then then those people who believe that this technology is, represents an existential threat would be absolutely right. So what's keeping us? Is it computing power from, from no. replicating our brain? No, it's understanding. It's our lack of understanding, right? I mean, we have, um, so what I, you know, what I describe in the, in the book is a very sketchy framework of our current, very provisional understanding of the way uh, different parts of the brain interact with each other, the, the kinds of information that they carry about internal states and inferences about things in the world and memories about causal relations and all those kinds of things, right? So we can build a sketch of that. And, um, but it's very, very provisional, right? We, we just, I mean, if we knew how the brain worked, uh, we, would, we would be able to build things that really have artificial intelligence. Right now, we don't. We don't understand natural intelligence. So, however, you know, I would say that some people would say, like, there's a, there's a barrier in principle to us ever putting into an artificial system the kind of architecture that we have that would enable intelligence. I don't see a reason for that. I think there's a area in practice, um, but I don't see why the right kind of architecture and the right kind of interaction with the environment wouldn't give something that we would absolutely have to call an agent. How does free will, Kevin, work with the sort of Lockean notion of experience? The idea that um, we are a bundle of experiences, yeah. Uh, yeah. we reflect what we've experienced in our life. Mm -hmm. um, I, I assume that those Lockean ideas, which of course were dominant in the 18th century, now they're controversial in some ways, but it seems as if we are all in some ways causes and consequ uh, the consequences of our experience. We're all imprisoned by what we've experienced in our life, what we've learned, what we haven't learned, our parents, our culture, our upbringing. Yeah. How does that affect? free agents. Well, it affects it hugely. Okay. So, but there's two ways to think about it uh, again. So on the one hand, you could think, well, I'm nothing but the current sort of my con current configuration of my brain is just caused by all these things that have happened before that I haven't been involved in at all. And that configuration is going to determine what I do next in any certain scenario. Um, I don't think that view is right. I think these things influence uh, the way our, our brains are configured, which, you know, it, instantiates basically our memories, our personality traits, our, our moods, our attitudes, our commitments, our plans, propensities, opinions, and so on. Right? So all of that, it's right to say that is what we are, all of those things. Um, 
But it's not necessarily right to say that that determines what we do without us being holistically involved in that in that process. So it, you can think about, so for some people, they would say you only have free will if you're absolutely free from any prior cause whatsoever. And if you think about that for a moment, it becomes really incoherent. So what would it mean to act free from any prior cause whatsoever? Because it means you can't draw on any past experience. Uh, you can't have a goal for the future because having a goal is a cause from the past. Uh, you you can't uh, know anything, right? So uh, evolution could have done nothing to to um, put you know circuits involved in your brain to keep you alive. Um, so none of that stuff. You just be a completely empty vessel, uh, like a would... computer, like an AI. Well, no, even less than that, right? I mean, AI well, before have... it gets programmed, like a blank AI, exactly. Before it gets programmed, right. Right? it's not doing anything. It's just random. You're an it's empty. Random... Uh, you're an empty hard drive, essentially. It's little, literally a random behavior generator. That's how AIs start out by doing random stuff, and then they get, uh, and then they get feedback, right? So we've gotten feedback through all of our lives. We've gotten feedback as a species through evolution to configure our brains in such a way that um, they allow us to continue through life. And I mean that not just uh, biologically, I mean psychologically, right? So the idea of being a self, it requires continuity through time. But as a, as a psychology, right, as a mind, the only thing that's making me be me and continue to be me through time is, is having those things from the past, right? It's having my memories. It's having my opinions. It's having my attitudes and commitments and plans and so on. So there isn't anything else it is to be a self except to have that bundle of constraints. So the idea that you could be free of those constraints, well, you could be free, but you wouldn't be you. Finally, uh, Kevin, uh, it's very interesting stuff. We did a show last week with Alex Byrne, a philosopher at MIT, who'd just written a book about gender and gendered identity, which is quite controversial. How does this play out, do you think, when it comes to gender? We live in an age where perhaps the most controversial element of free will is choosing to switch our genders. And there's mm -hmm. this ongoing debate about whether men and women think differently. Lots of people, it's so controversial, even people like JK Rowling's have thrown their hat, so to speak, in the ring and got into all sorts of trouble. How does your theory of free will, how does it play out when it comes to gender, sex and sexuality? Is that mm -hmm. just another feature or, 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 or is that conceivably changing the very nature of the conversation um it's funny i haven't thought about it from that angle although i have um thought about these issues in in terms of uh so i read a, a previous book um called innate which is about how the wiring of our brains shapes who we are and one of the um, chapters in that book is about sexuality and um sex differences yeah that's it thanks and, yeah the 2018 uh, uh, princeton yeah. book like your, your other one yeah, and so uh, it's very interesting to think of sexual behavior and sexual preference, for example. Where does sexual preference come from? Um, and it's very clear from working humans and other animals that most of that is is um, genetically driven by programs that differentiate male brains differently from female brains for that 
trait of, of sexual preference, right? And that's true in all kinds of species. I mean, you can study it in fruit flies and, and mice and, and all sorts of things. And there's very good reasons for um, that sexual attraction to be, um, to be that way normally. Um, well, that's the, that's the typical outcome. But of course, there, there can be atypical outcomes as well. And, um, and so you can get a same-sex uh, preference, for example, as, uh, as an outcome that happens, right? Um, when it comes to sexual identity, it's very much less studied in terms of the, the neural basis of it. I, I think we know hardly anything about it, frankly, um, except that there's some, some basis to think that some aspect of it is heritable to a certain extent. Um, but beyond that, it's very hard to say. My own feeling is that if, if people want to identify as, as males or females, then uh, more power to them. 